0: And then I'm going to ask you two to be volunteers for the first part, okay? So come on up here with me. I want you to hold this. And come over here. Oh. oh, I got two of these on, don't I? Oh. <laughs> all right, here we go. See if that fits. There we go. Okay. How many have how many of you all have seen a bishop before? I'm Bishop Reed. Some of you have. Okay, we wear funny clothes and carry around funny stuff, don't we? You don't see this stuff every Sunday, do you? It's a little bit different. What does this look like? A shepherd's staff, right? And what do they use it for? Herding sheep, right? They use the hook. If a sheep gets lost and wanders off, they'll take it and hook it and bring it back into the fold, right? And then what's the point for? Who's an enemy of the sheep? Wolves, right? And so the point is to... to fend off the wolves from attacking the sheep. That's the role of the bishop, is to be the shepherd of the flock of Christ, to bring them back into the fold and to protect them from the enemy, the wolves that are out there. Now, this, this actual technical term is crozier, okay? This is called a mitre. It's just a funny hat, right? But what does it look like a little bit? I want to see if you remember, in the book of Acts, in the upper room, the apostles are gathered together on the day of Pentecost, and What happened? The Holy Spirit came down on them, right? And it looked like tongues of fire lighting up on their heads. So this looks like a flame, doesn't it? All right, spin around real quick. And there's two little tabs on the back, right? We have the Old Testament and the New Testament, and these symbolize God's Word. So the life of the Holy Spirit in us and God's Word being implanted in us. That happens at baptism, of course. We receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. At ordination, the deacons and priests... The bishop lays hands on them, and they receive the gift of the Holy Spirit to become deacons and priests, just as when you were baptized, you received the gift of the Holy Spirit to become a son or daughter of God. So can we give a round of applause for our two volunteers? Thank you, sir. Thank you, ma'am. Just one. Thank you. So, the colic we prayed today and the lessons we heard today Talked about a very important thing that we believe as Christians. Did anybody hear that theme? What do you think it was about? Oh, this is what I wear all the time. That's only for in liturgy. So, um, the theme was about the return of Christ. And every Sunday morning, when you say the Nicene Creed, you say, He will, Jesus, will come again in power and glory to judge both the living and the dead. Now, what I want to say is, there are some Christians who think about the return of Christ and they do so with fear. And actually it's something we should look forward to, something we should celebrate. So I want, to think, I want you to think about a time when you had grandma or grandpa driving in from out of town to come visit you on Christmas day. How did you feel about them as they were, as they were coming? Were you excited for them to come? Were you looking forward to it? That's exactly what we should be looking at the return of Jesus as, a time of excitement Because when that happens, how many of you have ever been sick before? How many of you have ever cried before? How many of you have had a family member who's gotten hurt or maybe they cried? When Jesus comes back, none of that's ever gonna happen again. When Jesus comes back, God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. He will make all things new. The entire world will be joy and peace and love and hope and light. There will be no more sickness, there will be no more dying and God will wipe away every tear. So what I want you to think about when you say on Sunday morning, he will come again in power and glory to judge both the living and the dead. I want you to say that with hopeful expectation because one day he will. It may not be in your lifetime. It may not be in your grandchildren's lifetime. We don't know when, but he will come again at some point. And at that point, the entire universe will be made whole and new and refreshed. So it's a day that we look forward to. Thank you all for your time this morning. You can go back to your folks. So I've kind of tipped off where I'm headed with this sermon this morning. And the theme, of course, about the return of Christ leads us to ask one very important question, or to, I would say for me to make one very important statement, and that is, be prepared. I keep seeing online how the war in Israel that's just broke out is the beginning of the end. Surely Jesus is about to return. I don't know if it's the beginning of the end, but here's the thing, no one else does either. People have been predicting, predicting the return of Christ since the day of the Ascension, 2,000 years ago. In the 1700s, there was a, a Lutheran society called the Harmonites, and they built a quite modern and innovative town on the banks of the Ohio River, outside of what would become Pittsburgh. And the religious leaders in the 1800s decided that Christ was about to return. so. They made a rule that husbands and wives could no longer have children because they didn't want to bring children into this world that was going to be so scary and messy. Well, guess what happened? Before 1900, there were no more Harmonites left. The empty town was given to the state of Pennsylvania, and it's now an incredible museum to go and see just how innovative they were. Beautiful brick church building uh, a wine, what's that, a basement, incredible meeting halls, neat houses, But they all died out. A society in London in the late 1800s did the exact same thing, having built this grand cathedral church in the heart of London, decided that because Christ was returning, we could no longer have children. And of course, they died out and left this huge, empty, beautiful building behind. It was 1988, the fall semester at Texas A&M. My sister had just started at Oklahoma University and apparently she ran across somebody on campus handing out pamphlets that Jesus was returning now, I mean, any, any minute, because it had been 40 years since the establishment of Israel, and they pointed to all the signs and wonders of things that were going on. And she called me in tears. And I said, you know, if he does return today, it's going to be the greatest thing Will will ever experienced. There's nothing to fear. But our lessons today remind us that because he is coming, we need to be prepared. They all address the return of Christ in some way, and the simple message is, be prepared. If you think about it, much of life is, in fact, spent in preparation. Just coming to church today, I got up, I set my alarm, I showered, I shaved, I brushed my teeth, I got dressed, I made a cup of coffee, I checked my emails, I made sure my sermon notes were in my car, and then I drove over here. I mean, that was a lot of preparation for this one-hour service that we're doing today. And the more important the event the more preparation it actually takes. When you're studying for a final exam, you put a lot more time into the studies. If you think about a wedding, the average preparation time is about a year. And think of all that goes into preparing for a wedding and for a reception. The most important thing that we will ever face is seeing our Lord personally face to face, either at his return or at our own death. How much are we preparing for that? Be prepared. I would say that part of what we're doing here this morning is in fact preparing for eternity, our worship of the living God. This right now is helping to prepare our hearts, our minds, our souls for what is to come. And those who are being confirmed this morning, confirming their, reconfirming their baptismal vows, are preparing themselves for eternity by affirming their faith in Jesus as Savior, their commitment to follow him as Lord, and to be one who obeys his commands, one who submits to the reign of Christ and his kingdom so be prepared. In Amos, the prophet Amos, we have a reference to the day of the Lord, the great and terrible day of the Lord. For the prophet Amos, he had a message to Israel and to Judah that if they didn't repent of their evil ways, they would experience God's wrath. They would experience his judgment. While the day of the Lord prefigures the return of Christ, this would become a literal event which would happen 140 years after Amos as the people of Israel are taken into captivity and Jerusalem is destroyed. The fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of Israel are merely a foreshadow of the things to come as the world is rolled up and recreated. We read about these things to come in the New Testament. Jesus gives us the signs. There'll be wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes and strange signs in the heavens, but the world will still be caught by surprise. They won't be prepared. As we read Paul's letter this morning to the church in Thessalonica, it will be an event that transforms everything we know, the entire universe. I don't want to get into the rapture being caught up in the air, but when you look at that, you can see it's a whole new ballgame. The laws of physics, the laws of nature no longer apply. St. Paul says, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. The dead in Christ will rise, and then we will be caught up in them in the Lord. The entire universe will be rolled up, and a new heavens and a new earth will appear. A new Jerusalem will come to us, and we will dwell with God, and He will dwell with us. Then He finishes with this promise So we will always be with the Lord. That's our destination. That's our telos, our end game. So are we prepared? The people in Thessalonica had seen fellow brothers and sisters in Christ pass away, and they were beginning to ask questions about, well, what happens to their soul since they've died before the return of Christ? In this section of Paul's letter, he gives them the answer, and the main point to his answer is the fact of the hope of glory that we as Christians have, the gift of eternal life found in Jesus Christ. It is on this basis that Paul can remind them that they are not to grieve as others who have no hope. They can grieve, St. Paul says, but it must be shrouded in hope because of the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. He has gone to prepare a way for us, a place for us, so that where he is, we may be also. Jesus this morning tells us the parable of the ten virgins, and it's a pretty simple one to follow, I think, but he's driving home this very point that we have to be prepared. Five took care to have oil for their lamps. Five did not. And when it got dark, five had to go out and get oil. And it's then that they missed the arrival of the bridegroom. They're shut out of the marriage feast because they were not prepared. Jesus then ends with this warning. Watch, therefore, for you neither know the day nor the hour. Jesus is warning us to always be prepared. So what are some practical ways we can prepare? How can we ensure that we have oil in our lamps? when the bridegroom returns? Well, here's one list I could give you. First, trust in Jesus. Second, open your heart to the Holy Spirit. Pray daily, read your Bible, practice being in the presence of God and worship him at every opportunity you get. Abide in the life of the church and submit to the reign of Christ in your actions and in your thoughts and in your words. And finally, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind, and love your neighbors yourself. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. The day of the Lord is coming. We just don't know when, but we must always be prepared. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen.